live from Earth, it's Space Radio. I'm Paul Sutter, astrophysicist at Stony Brook University and the Flatiron Institute. And for the next half hour, your agent of the stars. We've got an exciting show for you today. That's right, we have a special guest. But before I get to my guest today, I have to get to you. This show lives on listener questions, even for the guests. Guess what? Guess what? 80% of what I ask the guest comes from you. We record every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern here at Spaceman Studios in New York City. So leave a voicemail to get yourself on the air. You can also follow along with our space cadets tuning in live from around the world, including but not limited to Luzerne, Pennsylvania, Hutto, Texas, Dubuque, Iowa, London, Canada. I wrote CN. My brain went to California, London, Canada, Howell, New Jersey, Ottawa, Canada, Columbus, Ohio, Dumas, Mississippi, Ashburton, New Zealand, Crozier, Virginia, and coming in at the last second, Indiana. You can join them if you dare by going to spaceradioshow.com for all the links old podcast episodes, live stream. We're tuning in live. We've got Kosovo checking in right now. But before I waste any more time, I'm so excited for this guest. This guest, folks, if you don't know who Kai Stotts is, you need to know who Kai Stotts is. And you're about to know who Kai Stotts is. I've had the privilege of knowing Kai for years, like five years now, I think, since 2016 when we first met. But let me tell you about him. Let me tell you about him. Kai is an avid lover of all things out of doors and offline. Reminders that we are analog creatures using digital tools to enhance our understanding of the world around us. As a researcher, speaker, filmmaker, and entrepreneur, he finds connections, builds bridges, and brings people into common spaces and times. At the Arizona State University School of Earth and Space Exploration, Kai contributed to the design of off-world human habitats as project lead for an interplanetary initiative pilot project. Kai's principal manager at Over the Sun LLC, developer of platforms for research and science education. His last film series, funded in part by the NSF, chronicled the first direct detection of gravitational waves in 2015 by LIGO, where he served as a visiting scientist. In 2017, Kai and Paul, that's that's me, collaborated to produce Song of the Stars, a film of the one-time live performance of a modern dance that tells the story of the first stars in the universe. Kai... How's it going, dude? Good, good. That was uh, wow. Thank you. I'm I'm honored to be on the show, and it's so yeah, good to see you. Again. You wrote that intro, so if you if you're saying that the intro that was very flattering, you literally wrote it, and I just read it aloud to the audience. Does it help that I've had other people edit it? Does that make it a little bit less self centered? Nope, not nope. at all. It's even more because you wanted people to polish this. Very, very flattering intro for you to make it as good as possible. So that doesn't help at all. Now, for those of you listening on the podcast, you are not seeing what we are seeing. On the live stream, you are standing in front of something fantastic. What yes. What is going on? I am in the world-famous, iconic Biosphere 2. I'm inside. So I'm going to destabilize my camera platform here for a moment and show you around. This is in the coastal desert. So I'm in the desert uh, biome. There was the, uh, the rainforest biome, there was the ocean, the savanna, the, uh, the coastal desert, and there's one other one I'm forgetting, I apologize. And so that's where I am right now, inside this beautiful facility, uh, very unique, nothing, ever else has been, nothing has ever been built quite like it before. Or since. Very cool. So 
So why? <laughs> so a lot of people's only introduction to Biodome was the Polly Shore movie. Biosphere. Why are you Biosphere. Biosphere. I see. That was the trick. Why are you standing inside of Biodome? Yes. So let's assume, let's agree, Paul, for the rest of the conversation, we're not going to mention the word Biodome ever again. That is one of the worst Bio movies what? ever yeah, made. I don't, I, exactly, I don't exactly. know what you're talking about. Exactly. Okay. So Biosphere 2 uh, is a uh, currently open uh, ecological research facility. It's, uh, as I said, it's unique to the entire world. It's the largest indoor ecological research facility. It's famous because from 1991 to 1990 through 1993, uh, it had eight people sealed inside. This was a hermetically sealed building, three and a half acre footprint with solid stainless steel floor. And it, when it was operational, when it was sealed, it leaked less than the International Space Station. It's an engineering marvel. And today, 30 years later, it's still a, just a beautiful facility with a lot of active, very diverse uh, research initiatives. And one of which I brought to the program, and we now have a Mars biome. So not inside the facility, but about 300 meters that way. Uh, we have taken the old test module, the original 1987 prototype for this building, and we're revamping it and refurbishing it and turning it into a hermetically sealed Mars habitat analog. Why in the world are you trying to replicate a Mars habitat on Earth? And, and, and tell us, what does a Mars habitat look like? Right. Well, physically, a Mars habitat, we don't really know what they mean. There's a lot of shapes and sizes they can take on. If NASA has... Uh, if NASA's first to Mars, it'll probably be mostly a tin can, not, not to downplay NASA's capabilities, but I don't think it'll be much more than a tin can uh, planted on Mars for, for a period of time. If SpaceX gets there, they're probably going to have something a little more aesthetically appealing is my guess. But in terms of what a Mars habitat looks like, it's very much constrained by the physics of the environment on Mars. It's really cold. There's almost no atmospheric pressure. And there's a lot of radiation, not as much as we thought there would be, but enough that you don't want to be outside on a regular basis. So tr tr to be honest, you wouldn't be in this. You wouldn't be inside a glass dome. All those gorgeous pictures of our future cities on Mars with glass domes. As far as we know today, it ain't going to happen that way. We're going to be living mostly underground or under at least partially buried shelters. So we've, we're doing our best to take this existing above ground shelter and manipulate some of the variables to come as close as possible to what we might have in a Mars habitat. So such an example of that would be that we painted all the glass structure on top with silicone to block the light. We put a window tint on all of the horizontal facing windows to reduce the light by 50% to match the amount of light on Mars. Um, so we're doing a lot of things to the best of our ability to, uh, to match the, the parameters of what it'd be like, at least on the inside of the habitat. We unfortunately cannot drop the outside temperature to minus 160. That would be hard. Yeah, especially in Arizona. That's especially in Arizona. Yeah. So what, what is the timeline for completing this? And what, are, what do you want to simulate besides the environment inside of the habitat of what a, like a Mars module might be like? What do you hope this be like? Is, is this related to the high seas experiment that's going on in, in Hawaii? Uh, just What's different? What's new? What's unique? Good, good question. No, good question. So high seas is one of many analogs that exist in the world today. There's high seas. There's the Mars Desert Research Station, which has been operational for 20-something years and a great success. Um, there's uh, Lunaris in Poland. Uh, there's uh, 
there's a, the Martes habitat down in, uh, in South America. Um, there's, a, there's about 12 active habitats. Currently, all of them are open air meaning they're not a sealed environment. And although you can still do a lot of good science, you can have a lot of the psychology of being in a relatively confined space with your fellow uh, analog astronauts. The reality is that when you put yourself in a sealed environment with a regulated or restricted airflow or no airflow at all, and you're recycling everything, your water, your food, your human waste, um, that really changes the game. Psychologically, it changes the game, and from the means in which you interact with that environment, it's a re it's a much much harder uh, paradigm. So, high seas is a good example. It's a beautiful facility. In fact, my former crewmate from my Mars Desert Research Station mission, uh, Michaela Nosovova, is the director of High Seas. She was just here a couple of weeks ago visiting, um, so she's done a great job of really keeping that program running. And uh, so, that's a good example. It's a beautiful facility, but that is an open facility. Got it. Got it. So that is, is the primary difference. What do you hope to uh, learn uh, that you, with this habitat that you can't learn from an open air habitat? Good question. So we don't expect to discover anything new in the tradition of science discovery. What we do expect to do is, is really fine tune procedures and strategies and systems by integrating existing technologies, maybe working on advances in some of those technologies toward a better means by which we can sequester CO2. So the, no, the thing that nobody's done before is transition from a mechanical, what's called physical chemical uh, life support system or CO2 sequestration. So you're using like lithium hydroxide, sodium hydroxide, amines, or zeolites, which is what they do on the space station. So they absorb the CO2 from the astronauts and they capture it. And then they control and either release it to space or turn it back into something else. But then we're going to be transitioning from that mechanical system into a bioregenerative system, which is this. That's what the biosphere was all about, was a fully bioregenerative, meaning we're relying on the plants just as we do on Earth to take in the carbon dioxide, produce oxygen, clean our water, et cetera. So we're gonna be doing that transition from a building that starts with just mechanical and transitions to bioregenerative and finds a balance between the two. That's never been done. And we think that more closely represents what's gonna happen on Mars. You're not gonna arrive on Mars with all these plants. You're gonna have seeds in your pocket. You're gonna arrive with an empty shell and you've got to figure out how to grow things after you've arrived. One of the questions from the space cadets has to do with growing things. So there are all these perchlorates that we've discovered in the Martian soil. Uh, how do we get rid of those in order to actually grow stuff in that dirt? Well, according to Matt Damon, you just mix a little poo in with it and the perchlorates magically disappear. So I think poo is the anti-perchlorate. Who is um, the answer to many things? Yes. Uh, no, honestly, that, that is a, a very good question, and it is true. One of our research projects is we're going to have soil beds, mostly hydroponics, but with some soil beds. We will actually mix perchlorates into the soil beds to the consistency that we believe is equivalent to what's on Mars, and then find mechanical, chemical, or biological means by which we can reverse that process, either stabilize or take the perchlorates out so that we can successfully grow plants. That's a really good question. So that is one of the research projects. We have five general areas of research of which one I described to you. And one of them is the perchlorates. Very cool. What, what are some of the other research projects? 
So because we're working in a hermetically sealed environment, we'll be using full spacesuits, an, an honest working pressure suit being developed by Smith Aerospace Garments in Portland, uh, Oregon, which was born out of the Pacific Space Flight uh, Organization. So uh, uh, Cameron Smith, Dr. Cameron Smith, has 11 years experience in building spacesuits, and they're beautiful. They're absolutely gorgeous. Um, uh, garments and our, we placed our order in January and he has them almost done. They're going to be done in about two weeks. So as you leave Sam, it's, it's called our, our facility is called Sam. When you leave and you go into our Mars yard, you have to have a pressure suit on. And that makes, again, things very difficult, very interesting. When your entire world is this bubble around your body, it's difficult to use tools to walk, to climb. If you fall down, getting up again in four and a half PSI over ambient is very difficult. So there's a lot of science, a lot of, again, practice and systems um, compatibility that we have to experience. Uh, and, and just for the analog astronaut experience, it's, it's awesome. It's fun. Yeah. How, how are you going to be in charge of picking the, the Sam, Samonauts? Samonauts. I hadn't thought about that. That's a good one. Um, yeah, you got to figure out the naming stuff here, Kai. It's very <laughs> important. Salmonites. I think Sam, no, Salmonites doesn't work. Uh, yes, my, not just myself, but I, with a team of professors at the University of Arizona, each one of which specializes in a particular area of research so that um, we can really glean the, the capabilities of the proposals. Um, and so the teams come to us and say, this is, our, this is our concept. And it's not our goal to reject them, but to say, hey, you might want to fine tune this, or you might want to make certain you're prepared for this, or our experience is that this will be challenging, you should do this instead. So we're really hoping to give people that positive experience. And if the proposal comes to us with and needs some help, we'll help them, we'll help them get it improved so they can come into the program. And you can stay for anywhere from five days to several months. I see. I see. So you're trying to build a more as like a general purpose, almost like an observatory or yes. accelerator where you provide the, the resources and then people can cook up their own research projects, come in, do their research project, understand something about living on Mars and then get out. We are building a research facility. We have our own objectives, but it's a facility, whatever you want to do with it. We also welcome artists and writers and filmmakers and poets and, you know, whatever people are inspired to do within that space. Are you going to have an artist in residence program? I don't know why not. That sounds like fun. <laughs> Maybe we should That's have so a, cool. a, an astrophysicist program. That would be fun. Then you can come. Astrophysicist in residence. Yeah, sure. I'll do. I'll host space radio Excellent. from Sam. I'll Excellent. do it. You asked about the time so, frame. Um, we'll be conducting our first yeah. pressure test in about three weeks. So we'll be doing a pressure test and CO2 test with uh, four people inside playing either Monopoly or Extronaut for a few hours. And uh, if, if we're allowed, drink a couple beers. And, and if we'll they're still alive when you open up the doors, you're all good. And if they're not, then that's science. I mean, you know, that's science. Learn. You, you, learn. you can't you make an go. omelet without breaking a few eggs. That's right. But it's amazing how many eggs you can break without making a decent omelet. No one mentions that part. Now, Kai, uh, Russell uh, is asking one of the space cadets. Uh, he's interested in future mission to Mars, and and there's some methane on Mars, both a little bit in the atmosphere and some buried in the ground. Is that a potential viable power source for us on Mars, or is it all going to be solar all the time? Interesting question. 
So I've typically, I'm not an expert in this field, so I'll do my best to, to answer just from what I've gleaned from the papers I've read, the people I've talked to. So methane um, is, is a very powerful molecule in that we can use it as a fuel source. We can burn it, of course, um, if it's in the right environment and it has the combustibles to burn with. Um, but methane, I've typically heard it being suggested to be used as a fuel source for rockets. I suppose you could also use it as a generator. Um, maybe the way, the way we use some of the fossil fuels here. Uh, but typically, I've heard that most of our electricity will come from solar or RTGs, uh, radiothermal generators, which are relatively low power, but very long-lived, uh, fairly safe means by which you can generate electricity. I think solar, okay. solar works, but of course, you have to bring a lot more solar panels because the solar gain is significantly less than Mars. Yeah, and so is that make Mars missions to Mars even more prohibitive? Just the amount of gear you have to take, like yeah. how how many launches would it take to build a SAM on Mars? In which case, it would just be am. <laughs> it would just be sa. <laughs> um, yes. So that's a good question. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I know. If we work backwards, so if we work backwards from like Elon Musk proposed one million person city, um, I, he, he's awesome. He does great things, but some of the projections are a little bit far reached. So somebody did in the Space Elevator Consortium did a, a, a basic numbers game and recognized it was something like 10,000 rockets to, to take everything to Mars. And that, that number may be off by a factor of two or three, but it was a lot of rockets to take everything that would be needed to build that million person city. So then the question might be, well, hey, why don't we just make stuff there? You know, let's just set up factories. Let's just set up, uh, let's just use the regolith and convert it into this and this and this. It sounds easy enough. And in a laboratory setting, you can do a few grams at a time. But if you've ever toured a factory, an actual smelter, an actual metal factory, we're talking about acres of buildings with megawatts of power consumption. It's not an easy thing you can just throw in the trunk of your rocket and take to Mars. So not to be a skeptic, but we have a long way to go before we are actually using in-situ resource utilization and building substantial vessels and factories on Mars. I, I don't know, 50, 75, 100 years out before we see something like that is my guess. Do you think uh, any Martian colony or Martian presence will be uh, will not be self-sustaining for a very long time? Or what's your estimate for that? Well, if they stay relatively small... And if we can really learn how to grow plants, the number one thing is, can you, bring, you know, can you produce your own food? And so there's in the recent 10 years, especially during COVID, there's been a substantial increase in the um, understanding of and, and general awareness of how to grow things in a greenhouse. A lot of people are doing are building grow facilities in their backyard for food or other things. And uh, and those those grow facilities are giving a lot of knowledge about how do we use LED lights? Um, how do we reduce the power consumption by specifically lighting within the frequency range, which is called PAR, photosynthetic activated radiation. So we're not wasting electricity with the light that the, the plants don't need. So I think we're getting closer to that. But as we learned at Biosphere 2, 20, you know, 30 years ago, and as we continue to learn in these closed ecosystem experiments, it's not as simple as just saying, I want strawberries, radish, cabbage, and I'll take some rice, please, because we're missing the whole fungal network in the ground that supports all mm -hmm. these things. We're missing the microbiotics and the, the, the myriad species that live in the soil that make soil what it is. And we don't really understand how much those systems are integrated into what we take, take for granted. So there's a lot of learning to do, and that's part of what we're doing our research on. There's, uni there's universities all over the world doing the same kind of research. So I think starting small, like Sam, 
and building up is the way to go. Start small, four people, small greenhouse, give it a couple of years and see what we can do. Got it. Got it. Um, let's step away from Mars and talk about all the other cool stuff you do. Because when I first met you, and I honestly, maybe it was 2014 when we first met, which is it was, uh, way too long. 14, it was 14 when I moved to South Africa. That's right. That's right. So I got introduced to you via email from a mutual contact. And then I happened to be coming out to South Africa uh, on invitation of cosmologist Bruce Bassett, who does a bunch of cool work. And I was going to give a talk at uh, Cape Town University and the African Institute for Mathematical Sciences. I was going to give some talks there and visit. I ended up spending almost all my time just chatting with you on the beach uh drinking ginger beers which uh was so much fun and we i remember i talked to you about song of the stars which was a dance project i did with seven dance company in columbus ohio and you ended up filming it so i i met you as a filmmaker who was getting a master's degree and and then and then you started working on ligo like kai how do you how do you do like six things at once well, not not without not without some damage, I think. <laughs> um, they're not all at the same time, but yes, I, I do like to juggle a few things. I think it's the old saying that the jack of all trades and master of none. And for me, learning something new is is probably the most excited, or that's not quite the right word. When I learn something new, that's when I feel most alive. And so, for me to continue to learn new things from people like you from all the, the incredible astronomers and astrophysicists and biologists and ecologists that I spend time with, every day that I can acquire new knowledge and a deeper understanding of how this world works, I feel better about myself and about the world that I'm in. And for me, that's what keeps me going. So it's a quest for knowledge. It's a quest for hang, you know, hanging out with amazing people. That's the motivation for it. Um, I'm, I'm pretty organized. I guess a little bit of OCD goes a long way. And having a really organized system allows me to juggle these things that you mentioned at the same time and, and do fairly well at them. I, sometimes I fall down. But. How did you get into filmmaking in the first place? Then how did you transition that to LIGO and talk a little bit about your LIGO work? Thank you. I'll, I'll start with your, with the first part of your question. So I was in supercomputing for 10 years. I ran a Linux operating system called Yellow Dog Linux and then was building supercomputers, built three of the top, the, the top 500 supercomputers in the world and, uh, and just what an extraordinary experience, but also very challenging. And when I sold that company in 2009, 2008, 2009, I fell into a deep depression, an actual clinical depression, not because of that, but because I was already inclined to that. And I think that was a trigger mechanism. So I sold everything I own. I sold my house. I sold, gave away most of my clothes, gave away my furniture, and I hit the road. I bought a camera and just started driving and decided that I didn't want to sell supercomputers to scientists anymore. I wanted to interview scientists and learn their story. And it was a way for me to spend more time with the scientists than just delivering a computer, shaking their hand and leaving. And so that, I spent seven years as a professional filmmaker um, while I was also getting my master's degree. And the master's degree was a promise to myself that I would no longer listen to the voice in my head that said I'm not good at math. It was in applied mathematics. And so I wanted to prove to myself that I could do well as a scientist. So 20, 20 something years after I graduated from my bachelor's, I went back to school, got my master's degree, was the oldest one in my class and uh, was a little bit challenging. And, uh, and that's how I came to LIGO. So I was, uh, was filming at LIGO, ended up sitting in on a number of lectures 
and was able to use some of my applied math skills and data analysis skills and impressed one of the professors and he invited me into the organization. So I transitioned from filmmaker to data analyst and a visiting scientist at Northwestern University. It was an incredible experience. I really, really enjoyed that. That's so cool. What did you do with the LIGO collaboration? So my, my work was in, uh, I was working principally with uh, Marco Cavaglia, uh, just an outstanding individual, really smart guy, and also with uh, a number of folks at Northwestern. And I was applying evolutionary computation. So it's biologically inspired machine learning. And I wrote my own algorithm from the ground up and was able to use that algorithm in a number of different instances. So we were doing supernova uh, detection using synthetic injected supernova data. And we were also doing what's called mechanical discovery mechanical couplings. So in LIGO, each instrument, Louisiana and Washington, have 100,000 moving parts. And each one of those parts is sensing the world and creating data every second, or sometimes multiple times a second. Well, those can cross-connect. You can have something vibrating over here that causes something over here to trigger. And it looks like a gravitational wave, but it's actually just noise from this guy. That's called mechanical coupling. So my algorithm was able to differentiate a real signal of gravitational wave from those mechanical couplings. Very cool. And then how did you get from LIGO to simulated Mars habitats? Well, for that, good question. For that, uh, the short answer is I can thank Jim Bell, uh, who is the chief photographer for the Mars rovers. Um, I've known him for a number of years. And after I got back from my master's, the very next day, and I flew back to the United States, the next day I took the train out to ASU. I went to his door and I knocked on his door and he says, Kai, you're back. And I said, I got my master's. Now what should I do? And he says, um, he says, there's a cubicle for you over there. It's yours. You figure out what to do. So I sat there for a year and I got to know the, uh, every day that I could, I sat there and I worked on my own projects at Song of the Stars. I worked on from that desk and uh, I got to know some of the physicists and astronomers and started getting invited into meetings. And eventually I got funding to build CMOC. So it's, it's a serendipitous tale of perseverance and tenacity and some really good luck and good people helping. <laughs> Absolutely. The way. What's, what's next for you? So we are taking SAM, this is a five-year project minimum. We're not just building a Mars habitat. We're also building a fully sculpted Mars yard that's a, a miniature scale of, uh, of uh, a Martian crater. We're building a neutral buoyancy lab so we can take our spacesuits underwater and do full underwater test procedures. We already have a prototype uh, that we'll have up and running hopefully by July. And uh, so we've got a lot of cool stuff built around this. It's the most focused I've been in a long time. This is my baby, and I'm really excited about it. And I have a great team, Kent Trash and John Adams, and some great people working with us. That is awesome. Kai, before you go, I do have one quick question for you. What is your favorite kind of cheese? It's a toss-up between some habanero jack, or you know, it's pepper jack with habaneros, or mm-hmm. lemon stilt. Lemon still is outstanding. It's like a candy embedded. You just slice it really, really thin and you put it on a very lightly flavored cracker and it's outstanding. It just it's little pieces of lemon Ah. peel inside the cheese. It's outstanding. Hard to find, but good. Where can I find it? I want to eat some right now. (laughs) I don't know. You have to go to your specialty cheese store. Fine, fine, fine. I'll ask the good folks at Tom's Cheese about it. Kai, how can people follow you and Sam and all the cool stuff you're doing? Yeah, thank you for asking. Um, the website is uh, SamB2. So it's S-A-M, the letter B as in boy, the number two, dot space. Or you can go to biosphere2.org and we're under the research uh, menu. 
All right. Kai, it, really, this interview was an excuse for us to catch up because you're a very hard person to pin down. And uh, you only accept my phone calls when I'm trying to schedule an interview with you. How? Oh, that's not quite true. Maybe, maybe it's not true at all. That's not true at all. Kai, it's good to see you again, and I wish you best of luck. Thank you much. It was a pleasure to be on your show. Appreciate it. That is the amazing Kai Stotts. And speaking of amazingness, we have some amazing cheese from Dom's Cheese Shop, D-O-M-S-Cheese.com, Dom's Cheese. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. This one is from Wisconsin. You know, we we go to all sorts of exotic locales here on the show. Now we're going to Wisconsin. But this is something different because there is a picture of a goat on this cheese. It's from Leclerc, Leclerc Family Creamery, family-owned, award-winning cheese, farm-to-table, packaged with care, local milk, goat milk. Boom. Raw cheddar. Raw cheddar goat. Like, this is three of my favorite words. And it's in the right order. So I'm very excited. It smells amazing. Like, you know, cheddars are supposed to be a little, ooh, have a little tang. This is like, but then goat milk has that extra fun tang to it. I've ne- I don't think I've had a goat milk cheddar. And then this is raw milk, so you know it's going to be good. Wow. Mmm. Mm-hmm. Mmm. Fascinating. I love it. Not the flavor profile I was expecting. Because you see the word cheddar and so you think, just think cheddar, 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 cheddar. No. This tastes like like a a really good Swiss cheese. Mmm. Another cheap, great value brand Swiss cheese. When you're like, when you're in Europe, you're in Switzerland, you're in France, and you say, hit me up, hit me up with that Swiss cheese. And then give you something secret out of the back room. And there's like a trap door and everything involved. And so it's like a Swiss cheese, but just like on another level. That's what this tastes like. This is amazing. I didn't know you could take raw goat milk, treat it like a cheddar, and then get Swiss cheese. Russell, thank you so much for the super chat. Send cows to Mars so we can have cheese. That's what I'm saying. And we need to start with Sam. So let's get a few folks together. Let's put together a research proposal. We're going to try to, we're going to bring some cows over to the SAM module in the, in the biosphere. And we're going to try to grow some Martian cheese. Let's do it. All right. We'll get, get a few. Nancy, can you, can you just arrange that? Mm. Mm, 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 mm. <sighs> Life is so much better after I finish that cheese. Let me tell you, Dom's cheese. They're amazing. Links in the show notes. They do deliver and they do ship around the country. So you can have, uh, like I've shipped out gift boxes of cheese to people I know and love. It's a great thing. Domscheese.com. Before I go, I do want to think, I've got a book here. So uh, I'm out of autograph books, autograph copies of my book. I need to order more from the publisher, but we're moving. And so I can't order some more right now. I have one copy left of How to Die in Space. But it's autographed to the wrong person. It's autographed to Jens. And then uh, I mailed it to Jens. And then it came back to me. 
And then Jens not, never came back to me like with the updated address. So I have this book floating around. So if you want a autographed copy to the wrong person, while well, I will cross out their, their name and put in your name, uh, send me an email at pmsutter at gmail.com. And uh, you can buy this autographed book to the wrong person. And I'll have Jens's name crossed out. And have, it's, it's the only copy left. It's the only one that I will get more, but it'll be a couple months before I get some more autograph copies. So just email me if you want it. Or you can contribute. You can go to patreon.com slash PM Sutter. That's P as in Paul, M as in Matthew Sutter is like butter, but with the S. It is your contribution that keep this show going. You can also be like Russell and drop a super chat into the live stream right now. <sighs> Kai is awesome. Kai is an amazing friend. We've been friends for years. I'm lucky to know him. I'm glad I got to introduce him to you. I hope you follow what he's doing because he's doing some seriously cool stuff. Unfortunately, this broadcast is almost done. Thank you for joining me on this voyage of space radio. Thank you, Nancy Graziano, for wrangling the space cadets and working with the guests. Catch the live stream every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern. Go to spaceradioshow.com for all the links. There's not going to be a show for the next couple of weeks because we're in the process of moving. Also, for the live stream, this is it for the chalkboard background. The new house, I've decided I'm not going to do a chalkboard wall because, you know what? It's just time. It's a new phase of my life. So the chalkboard wall, say goodbye. This is the last week for chalkboard wall. You'll continue to see it on the Ask a Spaceman YouTube series because I pre-record a couple months in advance. So it, it will live on in a somewhat zombie form. But with our next voyage of space radio, it's going to be a completely different Spaceman Studios. And that's the way it is. So see you in a bit. Don't worry. Don't worry. We're not going anywhere quite yet. Thanks again, Space Cadets, for listening. See you in a few weeks. And remember, science is for sharing. End of transmission. (laughs) 